invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, I've done something a little different today, and that is I've put some notes in your bulletin. <laughs> so if you find that helpful, you can pull that out if you're a note taker. <laughs> There'll be no test. <laughs> but there will be an application. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 to verses 12. What is an elder, and how do you choose them? Two Sundays from now, we'll be holding our annual elder selection. And from time to time over the years, some of you have remarked that it would be helpful for uh, me to teach on the topic for what we should be looking for and expecting from our elders. So I thought this would be a good time to do that. Now, elder is a weird word. It's not a word we use much these days, right? If someone says we should respect our elders, we basically are thinking about those at least a generation older than us. And that's literally what the word elder means. It means an old person. We have to realize that, that through much of history and still in, in many cultures today, old people were and are respected and looked up to for their wisdom. They have lived a long time. They have experienced much. They have made more mistakes than the rest of us. <laughs> and so they have had more time to master the art of living well. And so they were and they are granted a place of honor and leadership in villages, in tribes and clans, and in churches. Of course, how different life is now, at least in the West. Today, we tend to honor and look up to youth. We seek wisdom from social media influencers and young, beautiful celebrities. We have little time for old people, for elders. Well, what about elders in churches? In church, this is important. An elder isn't so much someone who is old and mature in chronological age, as it is someone who is old and mature spiritually. Some people are old chronologically, but they never mature spiritually. Other people might be still fairly young chronologically, but they are growing fast and they are quickly becoming mature, spiritually speaking. So at the most literal level in a church, an elder is someone who is spiritually mature and who has spiritual wisdom as a result. And what I'd like to do this morning is to unpack what that looks like. And, and to do it, I can't think of a better passage than the passage we read this morning, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 12. As you might know, 1 Thessalonians was the first or second book of the New Testament to be written. So it is among the New Testament's very first words about spiritual leadership. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul, along with his fellow Apostle Silas and their young apprentice Timothy, are writing to a community of people in the Greek city of Thessalonica who follow Jesus. And Paul and the others are reminding these followers of Jesus of what kind of leaders the three of them were and how they led the Thessalonians when they were with them. And so it's a great passage on eldering, what eldering looks like. 
Sure, our go-to passages tend to be in 1 Timothy and in Titus, where Paul describes some of the qualifications elders need to have. But in today's passage, we find out what elders actually do, how they lead, and how they do their eldering. And in a word, what elders do is that they serve as spiritual parents. Elders are spiritual parents. Listen to verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. And verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Elders are at their essence spiritual parents. They mother people. They father people. That's why much later in the New Testament, when we get to 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul says that to be qualified to be an elder, you have to be doing a good job. If you have a family, you have to be doing a good job raising your own kids and leading your own family. Because if you are still learning how to parent your own family, you certainly are not ready to parent a whole community of God's people. Because parenting is what elders do. All right, before we delve into what it means to be a spiritual parent, let me back up and say a bit about what an elder is not. Because if the essence of being an elder is being a spiritual parent, that means that there are some other things that an elder is not. Some things we might be tempted to think an elder is, which might actually have little to do with spiritual parenting. So first, an elder is not someone who can get up in front of us all and pray really well. Right? Does praying well in public make you a good parent? Of course not. Second, an elder is not just someone who knows their Bible well and who can talk eloquently and knowledgeably about God or matters of religion. Again, someone can know their Bible front to back and talk eloquently about all kinds of spiritual topics, and that doesn't make them a good parent. Third, an elder is not just someone who listens and cares well. Hopefully, a parent is someone who does listen and care well, and who prays well, and who knows their Bible for that matter. But listening and caring well isn't enough to make you a good parent. It's a good start, but it's not enough. And then fourth, finally, an elder is not someone who takes leadership and initiative in the church. Surprised? Sure, we need people to do that. We need people with leadership and management experience. But taking leadership or having leadership skills and experience is not enough to make you an elder. Because the question is, what kind of leadership are you taking? Don't you know plenty of leaders, maybe at work, maybe at school, maybe at church, who are not good leaders? Now, I raise these, these four points because in my experience, it's tempting to evaluate people for eldership in these four ways and maybe some others, especially if we don't know people that well and we're just kind of seeing them at a surface level and so we're kind of guessing. It's, it's tempting to use some of these four qualities, which are fairly easy to see, as our go-to qualities for selecting elders. 
But the truth is, we can appreciate these qualities about people, and the church needs people with these qualities, but none of these qualities make someone a good spiritual parent by themselves. So what is a spiritual parent then? What qualities does a spiritual parent have? Well, I'd like to suggest three from our passage this morning. What makes you a good spiritual parent? First, you have spiritual children. A spiritual parent is someone who already has spiritual children. What do I mean? I mean that a spiritual parent is someone who people look up to and people gather around because of that person's example and because of that person's maturity. People say, I wish I was more like that person. I wish I had his maturity. I wish I had her faith. I admire, I aspire to be more like him or her in my walk with God. But, and this is important, people don't just admire this person from a distance. Rather, that spiritual parent has also invited some of those people into his or her life and is investing in them personally, maybe formally, maybe informally. As Paul says in verse 8, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Spiritual parents draw people close and share their lives with people and are speaking into the lives of those people, advising them, encouraging them, mentoring them, and challenging and correcting them at times. Let me give you a couple examples of what this can look like in practice. First, when I was in college, I had a friend, I'll call her Jennifer, and Jennifer was mature for her age. She loved Jesus, and she was wise for her age. And so by her sophomore and junior year, Jennifer was leading a Bible study, and the younger women in our Christian fellowship flocked to her Bible study. They asked Jennifer to disciple them. They came to her with their problems and their questions. They asked her their hard questions about faith. They sought her input and her advice. And she spent lots of time investing in them and discipling them. She was a spiritual mother to them. And that's what an elder does. Second example. I had a professor in seminary. He had been a pastor prior to becoming a professor, and he was different from some of the other professors because he not only knew his subject, he was not only passionate about the content he taught, but he also cared for his students, and we looked up to him as a man of deep faith and wisdom. And so when he had office hours, they were always booked up, not because students wanted help with their assignments, but because they wanted counsel, they wanted spiritual input, they wanted to have what this professor had as a person. He was a spiritual parent to many of us, myself included. That's what an elder is, a spiritual parent. So you can spot an elder because you see that they have spiritual children. People are drawn to them for wisdom and for spiritual input. An elder is active in helping people grow spiritually to be more like Jesus. So question, who is like that at CBC? 
Who at CBC has spiritual children? Again, I'm not talking about those that people might look up to and respect and admire from a distance. I'm talking about those who also people gather around up close. Because that spiritual parent has invited those people into their life. Spiritual parenting has a personal component. It's relational. I once heard a pastor named Reginald Screen say, we can impress people from afar, but we can only impact people up close. Who's doing that at CBC? If you have the bulletin and you pull out the handout, there's a place to take some notes. If you don't, you could do this on your phone or on a piece of paper. But what I'd like you to do is take a minute and jot down anyone you can think of at CBC who has spiritual children. Write down uh, the names of those people. And write down women as well as men. I realize that CBC's practice is that we elect men as elders and women serve in leadership in other ways. But you don't have to be a man to be a spiritual parent. And we want to honor and we want to encourage all of our spiritual parents. You might just want to walk up to someone today after the service and encourage them and say, you know, I see this in you and I appreciate this. Thank you so much for being a spiritual parent to me or to others in our church. So take a minute and jot down who are the people at CBC who have spiritual children. I'll give you a minute to think about it. All right, you can add to your list later, but let's keep going. Because I want to talk about the second quality that makes a good spiritual parent. And that is that not only do they already have spiritual children, but also they act maturely. They are socially, emotionally, and spiritually mature. Boy, as parents, Anne and I have had to remind each other of this at times. (laughs) When one of us is feeling stressed or overwhelmed or we're feeling sorry for ourselves, when we feel like we're giving, 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 and nobody is making sure we get what we want or what we need, when our kids are frustrated with us and, and maybe we're frustrated with them, Ann and I have had to remind each other, and we do this, we say, remember, we're supposed to be the mature ones here. <laughs> we're the parents. <laughs> We've got, to, we've got to be the ones who act maturely in this situation. And sometimes we don't feel like it. We feel like throwing a fit. We feel like whining or complaining. But we're the parents, so we have to be the mature ones. And a spiritual parent is like that. It's someone who manages to remain the mature one when everyone else is falling apart or whining, or blaming, or demanding what they want, or wanting to be taken care of. So what does it look like to be the mature one in a a church context? Let me mention three things. First of all, mature spiritual parents work hard for the good of God's people. That's what parents do, right? They, They work hard for the good of their children. Parents take responsibility to hold things together when no one else feels like it. 
I remember as a kid that the house I grew up in didn't have central heat. We heated it with a wood stove. And in the winter, occasionally we would go away for the day and the fire would burn down while we were gone and we would come home sometimes late at night and it would be freezing cold in our house. And so the first thing that we needed to do was get that fire roaring to warm up the house. And I remember as a kid, sometimes late at night being so tired, I just wanted to crawl into bed. I didn't want to be the one making the fire, even though sometimes that was my job. But my parents, they were the mature ones in situations like that. They were tired too, but they would step up and they would do what needed to be done they would make that fire for the sake of the whole family. Parents work hard for the good of their family. That's what Paul says in verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. Mature people, spiritual parents, work hard for the good of others. Now let me just caveat this a bit, though. Because plenty of people, especially in a place like Westchester County, are motivated to work hard for all sorts of unhealthy reasons. Some people are driven to work hard because they're still trying to prove to a mom or dad that they're worth something. You remember that famous line in Rocky? For those of you who are old enough to have seen Rocky. <laughs> where he's, he's talking to his, his girlfriend, Adrian, about what motivates him to work so hard, you know, training for, for the big uh, boxing match against Apollo Creed. And he says, if I can just go the distance, 12 rounds, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Some of us work hard because we're trying to prove to a parent who might not even be alive anymore that we're more than just a bum, that we're better than that. Others of us work hard because we're controlling. We want things our way. And so we always step in and work hard because we want it done a certain way. And other people aren't going to do it right if they do it at all. Others of us have learned that when we work hard, others praise us for it. They appreciate us. And we're desperate for the praise. And so we work hard in hope of getting kudos from other people, that others will notice us and appreciate our efforts. So it's not just that spiritual parents work hard, it's that they work hard for the good of others. They work hard not for themselves, but because they're parents and they care for their children. And they're mature enough to take responsibility and do what needs to be done so the family functions well. The second aspect of maturity is that mature people are not overly concerned about their own needs and wants. When people are mature, it's not all about them, their agenda, their opinions, their great ideas, their preferences and wants. Mature people are genuinely concerned about others. They want to see others flourish. They want to see others be raised up and grow and mature. 
And so they'll put aside their own needs and wants to make room for others. My dad did this so well. It's, um, it's amazing the sacrifices he made. He, he didn't make a lot of money when we were kids, but he worked hard. And he would wear old clothes, sometimes patched, sometimes out of style, so we kids could have new clothes for school. He'd be the last one to get what he needed because we came first. He was genuinely concerned about our well-being. Others of you, especially if you've come from an immigrant family, you, you may have had parents or grandparents who worked hard and who did without and who sacrificed so that their children could get an education and have a better life, one that they knew they would never be able to have, but they did it for their children. That's what mature parents do. A great example of, of this mature act of putting others before yourself is a guy named Mike Breen. Some of you have maybe read some of his books. Breen is an, an internationally known author and speaker. And there's a real temptation for someone like that, so I'm told, to build a bigger platform, to sell more books, to get more speaking engagements at bigger conferences. All in the name of advancing God's kingdom, of course. But Breen took a different approach because Breen was a spiritual parent. So instead of running off to every speaking engagement he could or seeking bigger book deals, Breen invested himself intentionally in young leaders, in spiritual children. He sought to mentor them, to train them, to empower them, and to raise them up. And within a few years, guess what? Some of them were writing the books, and they were speaking at the conferences. They were leading the ministry that Breen founded and going on to found ministries of their own. And Breen kind of faded into the woodwork. Where is he anyway these days? Why don't we know? Because it wasn't about him. And so he was getting out of the way of his spiritual children. He was helping them succeed rather than making the focus be about him and his vision and his great ideas. Mature leaders are not all concerned about their own needs and wants. Third, a mature spiritual parent isn't just enthusiastic about Jesus. They also have the character of Jesus. Paul and his companions put it this way in verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you. Paul and his companions had genuine character. Some people are passionate about Jesus. They are super committed. They are at every prayer meeting. They sing the loudest. They raise their hands the highest. They're always encouraging others to be more committed and more faithful, and that's great. But don't confuse spiritual passion with genuine character. What's character? It's the fruit of the Spirit. People who have character are loving and joyful and peace-bringing and kind. They're patient with people. They're good and generous. They're faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. In the early 1700s, an immense spiritual revival swept through 
this country. It radically changed the face of the colonies who would later become our nation. And one of the leading voices in this revival, this great awakening, as it came to be called, was Jonathan Edwards. He was much more than sinners in the hands of the angry God, if you had to read that in high school English. Edwards has been called by some the greatest mind America ever produced. He was a pastor, a theologian, a thinker. And what Edwards observed as he led and as he labored in the midst of this great awakening is that this massive move of God with its powerful outpourings of God's spirit, it sparked great passion and commitment among lots and lots of people. People so experienced God's presence, God's love, God's power in their lives that they were totally excited and sold out in their faith. But over time, believe it or not, not all of that enthusiasm turned out to produce good fruit. In fact, sometimes these passionate people did far more damage than good. There were ugly divisions and conflicts in churches. There were bitter and contentious religious disputes. New cults and heresies started, all of which turned loads of people off from God and the church. And as Edwards reflected on this and wrestled with this, he wound up writing a book about it. It's a classic called A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. It's the way they titled books back then. Edwards realized that, that religion, and a vibrant, alive religion even, can produce all kinds of affections, all kinds of emotions and motivations and inclinations in people. Some of them are good and healthy. Some of them are false and unhealthy. And so Edwards, in his book, sets out how to tell the difference between true and false religious affections. First, he he listed the, the qualities and the signs that are not good indicators that someone has healthy religious affections. These are signs we might be tempted to look for, but in the end, they're not reliable. He said, for instance, don't judge someone by how strong their emotions are or how fervently or passionately they are about their religion or how much they want to come to church or be involved in church or Bible studies. He said, don't mistake this religious zeal for the true work of God. Rather, look for things like this. Are people in their religious affection drawing attention to God? Or are they drawing attention to themselves and their religious efforts? Also, are people growing in humility and an appreciation for the grace of God? And then additionally, are people growing in their character and in how they treat other people? Are people growing more gentle? kind, loving, etc. Do you see the difference? Spiritual parents, spiritual maturity is not just about religious zeal or commitment, although that is awesome. But rather, it's also about character growth. It has to be. Mature people are easy to get along with. They're easy to work with. They're trustworthy. They're dependable and you admire their character. All right, then finally, 
Here's the third quality of mature spiritual parents. Their life and their leadership is centered on the gospel. Listen to Paul and his companions, verse 8. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We've already talked about the our lives as well part. Let's focus now on the fact that they preached the gospel of God. <laughs> what does it mean to be centered on the gospel? Well, it doesn't just mean that this person has memorized one of those two-minute plans of salvation and that at every opportunity they whip it out and share it. It means rather that this person's whole life is founded on the reality that because of God's amazing grace to us through Jesus Christ, we don't need to try to earn our way into God's good graces. Their whole life is founded on that reality. And so leaders centered on the gospel are not using guilt as a way to pressure other people to do or to get on board with their agenda. Have you met leaders like that? They have a holy agenda to build God's kingdom and they guilt people into being the foot soldiers and the manpower to make it happen. That's not the gospel. That's not the way of Jesus. The gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is that God is willing to forgive all of our sins and to receive us just as we are. And God has invited us to become his children, beloved, accepted, secure in his family. And we don't have to do anything to earn that. But if that wonderful truth sinks in, really, it will transform us. It will fill us with joy and gratitude. And so as God's children, we will want to better resemble the heart and character of our Father. And we will start to care about what God cares about. And so a leader who's centered on the gospel is secure in God's grace. They're not driven by a need to prove their value to God or to anyone else. And they don't drive others either. And so they don't pressure others to get on board with their agenda. But rather with grace and love, they gently and patiently and at times firmly parent other people to grow up spiritually. So in closing, if you want to get out your notes again or your phone, I want to invite you to think again and to write down who at CBC, men and women, who is mature? Who is centered on the gospel? Who works hard for the good of others? Who is not focused on their own needs or wants? Who has real character and not just religious enthusiasm? Who is centered on the gospel and secure in God's grace? Write down the names of people who come to mind. Again, I'll give you a minute, although you may want to work on it again later. All right, you should have two lists of people now. And what I would suggest is that if you have people who are on both of those lists, they're people you might want to think about 
as selecting for elders. Let's pray.